Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Revolution Recap. The Revs' unbeaten streak has sadly come to an end at 11 games as they fell 2 to nothing to LAFC Saturday night. Diego Rossi put LAFC out in front in the 8th minute with a cross-turned chip shot into the side netting, and Latif Blessing tallied an insurance goal in the 72nd minute as the Revolution offense struggled to find their footing in the final third. I'm Greg Johnstone. Joining me today is Seth McComer from the Bent Musket. Seth, how's it going? Yeah, happy to be here. A little disappointed that we aren't here with Larry Jackson, but happy to be here with uh, you and Carl. You know, we uh, we tried getting in touch with his people. It didn't work out. Maybe for a future podcast. You'll be the first to know uh, when we get Larry Jackson to come on to talk Rebs. Uh, but we did bring someone else back to the podcast, making his triumphant return. It's Carl Sutherland. Carl, how's it going? Oh, I am I am thrilled to be back on the premier uh, Rebs podcast out there. Uh, although I'd just like to note, I think you mispronounced Seth's name. He takes great offense to that. Uh, McCumber. McCumber. You know what? I mispronounced everyone's name. I'm phonetically challenged. Anyone who's listened to this podcast knows I uh, mispronounce names terribly. And I'll just blame Sean because I think he told me that was your... He gets very... Seth gets very mad when his name is mispronounced. I'm sorry, Seth. That's that's my bad. You know, I, he, I'm surprised Seth just hasn't quit the podcast. No Larry Jackson mispronouncing his last name. Is he still here? Did he hang up? For the record, uh, Carl is the one that's mispronouncing my name. Uh... But I will, I'll answer to anything, really. Uh, I'm just going to call you sent from the best bent musket uh, from now on. Actually, uh, so last week, the last podcast we did, there was someone who asked two questions, and I said his name twice, and I said it two different ways, and the first time it was correct, and the second way it was not correct. Uh, and he's asked another question today, so I'm gonna. We'll see. We'll see if I remember which pronunciation is correct. Uh, uh, we'll, let, let's hop into the match. Um, let's go to our key takeaways of the match. Uh, Seth from the Bent Musket, uh, what was your key takeaway from last night's loss? Yeah, just tactically, going into the game, uh, the thing I was harping on is how the Revs would play their width. Um, in recent weeks, we've seen uh, Carlos Hill play on the right side, but then really come inside, play a very narrow midfield, which allows Brandon By to overlap to create the width. And that was really concerning to me because a lot of opponents have exploded that um, space in behind Brandon By, and sometimes on the left-hand side as well. But we don't see that quite as much with Pania out there because Pania, Pania does not play well in the middle. We could probably talk about that later on. Uh, he's better out wide. So you don't see as much overlapping happening on that side. You see it more on the right side. Um, eight minutes into the game, we see that LAFC take advantage of that space and uh, Rossi scores an opening goal. So it didn't take long for LAFC to actually create an opportunity and also capitalize by scoring. And we've seen in recent weeks other teams be able to exploit that space, but they just haven't been sharp enough to score. And versus LAFC, who played that you know, 4-3-3, that played three in the, uh, the front, at least in the beginning they were, um, there was going to be opportunities where they were going to be able to get in behind and create uh, chaos, and they did that all throughout the night. They happened on the other side as well, with Vela getting in behind and going at um, Carlos, uh, sorry, Castillo. Uh, so that was a big tactical mismatch for me, and that created a lot of problems for the Revs. Even later on in the game, uh, LAFC was getting their fullbacks up. So Beta Shore was getting up on the right-hand side. He had a good opportunity that he kind of flubbed. Uh, after the game, he talked about it was because of the turf, you know, and a 
any Reds fans ever heard that before, that fans don't like playing on the turf. He said on grass, he probably would have been able to get a shot off that maybe goes in the back of the net. But the turf, his, his ankle kind of buckled a little bit. He wasn't going to get that shot off. And then, of course, on the other side, you have Jordan Harvey collecting the uh, assist on the second goal. So those wide areas were, were a problem area for the revolution all throughout the night. And it'll be interesting to see how they adjust next week when they face when they face the Sanders, who also you know can attack them on the width and have a lot of players that can can uh, exploit that space. So that's an area like going forward, Res fans definitely look out for that. Think about maybe uh, some other adjustments that can happen. Do you try to sit back a little bit more with Brandon By? Do you try to play uh, your midfielders a little bit wider? It's something that Bruce Arena and the Rams have to figure out if they're going to make the playoffs this year. Yeah, and I think that's something we've been harping on for months now. The outside backs aren't the best defensively and they seem to be two weak spots in the game i think at one point yesterday i saw carlos vela and and, uh uh, edgar castillo one-on-one and i was just thinking boy that that's going to be a (laughs) that's going to be exploited all night the outside backs with the revs are not the best in i think any of our opinions so yeah it'll, it'll be interesting to see how they kind of strengthen that area defensively when they face the tougher opponents and it'll be interesting to see if there's any changes next week i know that last night at the press conference uh bruce arena said that uh, andrew farrell he doesn't know if he's a center back or a right back um but he needs him as, as a center back right now so there doesn't seem to be any indication that andrew farrell is going to be moving back to right back so brandon by and, and edgar castillo look to be the two guys uh moving forward carl uh do you have any uh key takeaways from uh, last night's game yeah, I guess uh, I just feel like it's important to keep everything in context. Uh, this, you know, it's been some major ups and downs this season, and they're just coming off a really big high of that unbeaten streak. Uh, but uh, I really have to keep that in the right perspective. And I know they're, you know, and deservedly, Bruce Arena was getting a lot of credit, and uh, and Mike Lapper too, if you want to include him. But uh, you know, you you have to look at the games in the unbeaten streak and just to go on for that long was uh impressive in its own right but uh they're really the only good win in that stretch was over the la galaxy that was arena's uh first game his former team you can see how they would really get up for that game uh there were a couple good uh draws in there against uh philly again or that's a a revenge game so maybe a little extra motivation and then the dc united uh ones but uh overall it you know if you look back at that stretch um it was obviously a significant improvement over the brad friedel revolution i want to caution against uh people getting too ahead of themselves that this is probably still a team that is going to be fighting for the last for the seventh seed or maybe even the sixth seed. And uh, more likely than not, it's not going to be a team that's going to make a deep postseason run or anything like that. You kind of saw against a quality team like LAFC, they uh, held their own to a certain extent, but as Seth mentioned, they have that big weakness out wide and, um, and you you just saw a quality team is, is going to beat the revs on, um, you know, most days, a couple of those games, maybe the Revs can pull out if you have a special performance by a, a couple players or just uh, different circumstances. But uh, I just think, keep in mind that it was a good run, but, uh, you know, you've got the Sounders and the Red Bulls coming up, and you might 
not get any points from this three-game stretch. You might get one or two points. You might get three points. Three points is probably the best you can hope for. I, I really uh, I really wouldn't expect them to win uh, on the road against Seattle and uh, New York. So uh, keep things in context, I guess, is my message. Yeah, and it's it's pretty hard to uh, kind of go from an 11-game unbeaten streak and to kind of be knocked down to remember that uh, this is a borderline playoff team. And, and um, yeah, they're going to be tested over the next few weeks at Seattle, like you said, Carl, um, and then at the New York Red Bulls uh, on August 17th. Um, I will say they have a couple of winnable games, uh, two home games following that, Chicago and Toronto, but then they go back on the road, play New York City at Orlando. So, so you know, the next five games, there are at least three that I would say it's fair to expect them to lose or maybe you'd be happy with one point. Um, and then there are two home games that maybe you take six points there. So seven or eight points from five games is not unrealistic. So um, it might be a bit of a tough month. Uh, we're going to go from a very high of highs to uh, a bit of a, dare I say, summer slump. Um, I'm going to actually not disagree, but I want to kind of touch on the offense for my key takeaway. Obviously, it was a bit of a um, lackluster performance um, after 10 goals in three games. Uh, since the acquisition of Gustavo Bo, uh, getting shut out was kind of deflating, to say the least. I will say, I think this team is still getting used to each other. Uh, Bo has been with the team roughly three weeks now. It seems like he's still not completely on the same page with everyone. They seem to be a little bit off here and there. Um, and even with that, there were a couple of chances that were uncharacteristic for the Revs. Um, I think the biggest chance that was missed was uh, Brandon By kind of slides a pass to the center to a wide open Carlos Hill who just can't control it. Uh, the ball kind of kind of slides off his foot and he doesn't get a shot off. Uh, if he controls that ball, I, I fully believe it was a 1-1 game at that point. Um, Gustavo Bo, I think he had a play where Hill kind of leads him into the box and he whiffs on the shot. Uh, so they did have some kind of half chances that just never really fully developed. Uh, and I, I'm going to have a, my glass kind of half full in that, you know, in a month from now, if they're a little bit on the same page uh, or if they don't have the bounces kind of go the wrong way, maybe they're able to put one in the net against LAFC. Um, I do think that they weren't the better team. I do think that LAFC deserved all three points. Um, but just the fact that the Revs came out and kind of at least – fought to be in the game and fought to be in the same field as LAFC, I think is a promising um, promising sign, all things considered. And I think that if they do end up on the same page, um, you know, I, I, I wouldn't be shocked if they beat New York in New York uh, in two weeks. I wouldn't, you know, bet on it. Uh, but I, I certainly think they're going to give some good teams a run for their money. Yeah, I was just going to say, uh, maybe to amend my uh, previous point to uh, really keep expectations low for the next couple games is that uh, they might uh, run into some good luck if, uh, as it as it appears, Aaron Long might um, be on his way to a transfer, Not nothing um, for sure yet, but uh, they might uh, they might end up with some good fortune at the Red Bulls game, and, and uh, sometimes you need that to... Uh, to get those extra points and uh you know they have had some good fortune during the streak and and uh could could continue in a couple weeks from now i just want to point out while you were talking that seth uh <laughs> seth left i don't know if he's still upset about me mispronouncing his name we'll try to get him back on but uh yes I, I, that is a good point about aaron long potentially leaving um 
and as I say, I think they've played the Rebels pretty close the last couple of weeks, um, or, or the last, not the last couple of weeks, the last couple of times they've matched up. So um, we'll, we'll see how it goes. Um, I want to get your guys' thoughts on uh, Gustavo Bo. Seth, are you back with us? Yeah, sorry. Carl was really boring me, so I wanted to leave for a minute. They're very, very fair. We want to. I, I want to get your thoughts on Gustavo Bo because this was probably his worst performance so far as uh, a Revolution player. Um, overall, was not really effective. And for a guy that's playing in the center of the field, um, you're kind of hoping for a better game. Seth, I'll, I'll start with you. Uh, what were your thoughts on Gustavo Bo, and do you have any concerns about him going forward? Yeah, so I thought it was kind of interesting. Uh, the Revs come out pretty hot, and then after LAFC score the goal, it seemed like. Obviously, momentum switches a little bit. It seems like the team started to change the way they were playing, where um, they were relying a little bit more on trying to get them on a fast break. Or uh, what I was seeing a lot in the first half was a striker would check into the space and then try to get in behind, and they try to play a ball over the top. So sometimes that was uh, Teal Bunbury doing that himself. You check in and then try to run into the space, or sometimes he would check in and you see Gustavo Bo try to run into that space. And in the second half, we saw that it was really trying to hit them on the counter where Bo and Bunbury played really high, just basically as a two where everyone else would drop pretty pretty far back. And then once they win the ball, they tried to hit those players very quickly to try to create like a, a two-on-two or a two-on-three type situation. And, you know, there was some success there. I mean, we saw Teal Bunbury, you know, turn his player, then go at him. I personally would have liked to see either an early ball into Gustavo Bo or maybe Gustavo Bo hold his run a little bit so we could cut it back to uh, so Teal can cut it back because Teal ends up shooting the ball and not even coming close to the mark. Because you know, generally speaking, we've seen that Bo is a better shooter than Teal Bunbury, which I don't think is, is saying too much in that regard. And after the game, uh, Bruce Arena said the same thing that he would have liked to have seen you know Teal pass in that instance. Um, I, yeah, I'm not really sure. I think we're still trying to figure out, the Reds are still trying to figure out uh, where Gustavo Bo works best. I mean, we saw him in his first game play on the left-hand side. Then we saw him later on play on the right-hand side. Then we saw him in the middle. We've seen him up top at times. They're trying to figure out with this player. I do think that there is a little bit of concern, especially at a team like LAFC, where they're really exploring those wide areas. I am concerned about the idea of playing Carlos Heel out wide and then asking him to cut in because I think you want him on the ball as much as possible. And and if you're not if you're playing him out wide, you're going to lose the width because he's going to come inside. Or if you play him out wide, he's just not going to have as much touches on the ball. And I think the best moments last night were when he's on the ball trying to take on a player or two, then slip a pass. Uh, at one point, there you know he he is coming in the middle, he's working hard, and then Gustavo Bo, you can see the. How clever he is with his runs. There was a few different times where he makes these clever, you know, um, over the back shoulder of a defender type run, and he he, he makes that run. And Carlos Heel slips him in behind. It ends up Gustavo Bo is offside, but he still misses a shot anyway. I think that that's the type of partnership that you want to see. I think you want to see, you know, Carlos Heel in the middle doing his defensive work. I think that's another thing that's underrated about Carlos Heel is how much work he puts in defensively, where if he's on the right-hand side, he's not doing that work in the middle as much, which is going to open up some gaps. Um, and I think that so you want him there. You also want him there for that creativity of, of moving the ball quickly, finding those gaps, trying to find those forward players. So I think that's one thing that you, you really got to keep in mind uh, going forward. Because, yeah, I mean, this was like Bo's second game, where Bo's second game uh, – of his of, of his Rev's career, he wasn't completely sharp. He wasn't really making those 
the, the having the moments that he had in this first and, and, and third game. So I think that we're, we're still, to your point, like you said earlier, Greg, I think that we're still trying to figure, the Reds are still trying to figure out what the best formation is, what the combinations are going to be like. If they can get that going, then this this uh, this attack is going to be one of the most dangerous, um, maybe not in the league, but like in the, in the Eastern Conference. Yeah, and I agree with everything you said. You actually kind of took my next question of, do we need to move uh, Carlos Hill to the center of the field? Because I think that is a... I, I think he definitely works in the middle uh, the best. I don't know where Gustavo Bo plays best right now. Um, I, we're still kind of learning him uh, inside and out, but um, I feel like Carly's heel not in the middle of the field is a big missed opportunity for the Revs, and they, they didn't seem to be clicking on um, all cylinders. So uh, Gustavo Bo also, it should be noted, that yesterday was his first game without a point. Uh, he had a goal in the first game, an assist in the second game against Cincinnati, and then a goal uh, last week against Orlando. Um, but, of course, that assist in Cincinnati was him kind of losing the ball and Carlos Gill finishing his chance. So, uh, Carl, do you have any uh, thoughts on that? Yeah, um, I'm ready to give up on Bo uh, after that game. <laughs> and, uh, you know, not, not, worth the, uh, not worth all the hype. I uh, clearly saw a uh, guy had a down game and uh, just just done with him. I mean, four four games in, it's not going to get any better. There's no way. I, I do think that, um, to uh, you guys' point, I think there is a concern of, uh, at least in my mind, uh, Bruce Arena falling into the same trap that, uh, that Jay Heaps did, where clearly... Uh, there is a lot of good offensive personnel, and there is still some imbalance on this roster um, where there are more good offensive players uh, than you can fit into the lineup at one time. And uh, and maybe we'll get to this a little bit later, but um, with uh, Juan Agadello in the center of the field, I, I would have preferred either uh you know and i guess this is just swapping one offensive player for another but maybe heel in the center and and put diego in the in the lineup out on the wing or even uh against lafc i thought scott caldwell could have fit in there and provided a little more balance uh in that in that group i just worry i i think it's an interesting thing that arena is doing trying to uh find a way to fit agadello Onto the, into this lineup, but uh, but also that he shouldn't uh, force it, and especially shouldn't force it uh, against a team like LAFC. Yeah, and that's a good point too. We actually did get a question uh, about what changes, if any, would you make to the starting lineup? And I don't really blame Bruce Arena for going the way he did. He kind of played the hot hand, and it seemed like he was playing his quote unquote best lineup. Um, but yeah, you you wonder Zahibo moved to the bench um, and and. You know, I know you said Scott Caldwell, but uh, I'm surprised that you know uh, Bruce Arena seems to have a soft spot for Wilfred Zahibo uh, and seems to like the Caicedo Zahibo pairing. And he went with Juan Agadello, which I thought was a bit interesting. I thought he would have gone with the pairing of Zahibo uh, and Caicedo, which is a little bit more of a defensive-minded lineup, like you said, um, going against LAFC, who's going to um, really just torch you on the counterattack and really on all phases of the game can torch you. So uh, I was kind of surprised he didn't go with the more defensive lineup. Um, Juan Agadello, all things considered, didn't have a terrible game. He did have 12 ball recoveries, but I think that just uh, is, is because LAFC held so much of the ball. Um, he was 3 for 6 on tackles, uh, 71% passing accuracy. He, he had an okay night, but uh, he's a guy that's still learning that position. And yeah, he, I, I wouldn't 
call him a liability, but uh, I think maybe a more of a defensive pairing would have been better. That's really the only change I would have made to the lineup. Um, Seth, do you have any thoughts on that? If, if uh, maybe another defensive midfielder was the way to go as opposed to Juan Agadello? Yeah, it's a tough thing to, overall because um, I've been very much, I'm curious about this whole experiment, uh, whether it be Agadello or it's uh, Dio Fagundes, because uh, the games they played there have been okay, but I think both players aren't known for their defensive contributions. And what I mean by that is, you know, they sometimes they're out of position because they, they've never really been asked to play in that type of central role and track the players the way that they're supposed to be tracked. And sometimes they're out of position. Sometimes they're making tackles that aren't needed. Uh, for Agadello, I was talking to Jason York of MLSoccer.com before the game, and I brought that that PK that could have potentially be called a few games back. You know, like they're, they're tussling in the box and uh, Agadello pulls someone down. I think part of the reason why he has those instincts is because he's never really been in the box that often. You know, I mean, surely, like, when he's on the outside, he, he comes back and, and he, he, you know, tries to win the header. So there are times he's there, but a lot of times throughout his career, he's been a center striker where he might be playing a little further up the field. Uh, Diego Fugundes, uh, there was times where he's, like, you know, tackling someone outside the box and giving away a free kick in a bad area. So when you're a little bit further back, you have to be careful of, when you push forward to make sure that there aren't gaps behind you if they're, if you quickly lose the ball or something, um, or you have to be careful of when you're making certain tackles. And I think that that's something that, you know, Agadello could potentially learn. I think that what he does a nice job of is that he can make a quick move to create space for himself and then, you know, find that next pass. And I think Diego and Agadello are both good at that, where if you have Casado that's with you covering a lot of that space, I mean, it cannot be – Overstated. I think I mention it every time I'm here, every time that I'm writing an article or on Twitter. Yeah, Casado covers so much ground. You know, like he is a such a, a dynamic player, such a uh, skillful player, such a, a player that just never gives up any moment. So he's going to cover you a lot of the times. But there's also times where you have to cover him. You have to make sure that you're also in a defensive block, especially against a team like LAFC, who are going to have so many attacking weapons go forward. Sometimes you have to fill those gaps in that back line. And if Agadell is not always there or he's not tracking a run in the midfield, there's going to be issues. So I think Agadell, he, he did – I was watching him really closely, and, and I was overall impressed by how often I was like, oh, that's a good tackle by him, or that's a good win by him, or that's a good – you know, he gets the ball and moves it quickly. But there's other times where, uh, you know, like he, he doesn't track a run. He's a little lackluster on, on like, his defensive marking at a moment – and I think the problem with the middle is that it only takes one or two of those bad moments to make you forget about the rest of a, a pretty decent game. You know, and I think that um, when you're up top or, you know, you're on the wing, it's it's the opposite. You know, you need you can have a bad game and all of a sudden you have one shot on goal or you have one goal, you have one assist and everyone's like, wow, that was a really great game. And I, and I was mentioning this about Christian Pena. Christian Pena was asked to come inside a lot and, and and play a lot of defense, and it's just not his game. I mean, at one point, he's in the middle of the field, he loses the ball, and uh, LAFC marched towards the goal, and they would have scored if it wasn't for Andrew Farrell making that goal line clearance. And it, and it just happened time and time again, uh, where that's just not you know Christian Pena's game. So he had, I thought he had a pretty poor game, but all of a sudden later on, he has this shot that you know just goes wide of the net. Like if it goes in the back of the net, everyone's kind of forgetting about all the other missed passes and poor tackles that happen. So Agadell is let's get in this mindset that it's it's a it's a ninety minute or whatever it is performance, and and I think that 
maybe he gets there. I'm not as confident as other people uh, that he becomes like a, a true number eight in this league. Um, and I think that maybe against LAFC, who's a little bit more talented, maybe you go with someone who's played that number eight spot uh, for a longer time and, and, and knows all those responsibilities. But I mean, I, I'm, I'm more encouraged than I thought I would be uh, when I first heard that Juan Gadello is going to play the number eight. Uh, I'm still not there to think that this is going to be, I know there are some people saying that like this could be his route back to the national team and you know how people love to, to jump on the hot takes and stuff. I'm definitely not there yet. Uh, and I still think that probably in the off season, we see a defensive midfielder be brought in to pair with Luis Casado. Yeah, I, I, I think Juan Agudelo on the national team, that, that ship has sailed for by, by a couple of years now. But uh, regardless, you're right. I, I think that there were a couple of moments, too. Um, I don't have the exact minutes or who was responsible, but um, I think I think it was around the 25th minute. Uh, Edgar Castillo, I think, is passing back and forth with Pania, and they turn it over, and Carlos Vela, I think it was like a two-on-one or a three-on-one, but it was a little slow to develop, so they didn't get a, a good shot off, and the emergency defending kicked in. And then there was another play, which led to the Farrell um, saving his own, own goal uh, off the line, where uh, it might have been Juan Agadello. Uh, someone turns the ball over in midfield. It's a quick through ball to Vela, who's in on goal, and Turner comes out, makes the save, and then Farrell knocks it back. So there were two turnovers in the midfield or in the defensive third that really could have been disastrous for the Revs that I think we'd be leading off the show with and talking about uh, how, how poor the possession in the midfield was. Um, and, yeah, I think Juan Agadello. Again, nothing really you can point to as being totally disastrous, but I think it's very fair to say that he is a work in progress um, uh, at best. Uh, so maybe he will develop, but uh, you're right, Seth. I think, I think as Carl said earlier, you know, you, you can play Juan Agadello in the midfield against FC Cincinnati, um, but you know, come the playoff time, uh, is Juan Agadello going to be the best choice against uh, the Red Bulls on the road? Uh, is he going to be the best choice against NYC FC on the road? Um, one other point, uh, one other player I think we, we should talk about. We've we mentioned him uh, on and off, but Teal Bunbury, uh, I think, is back in the ire of a lot of Revs fans. Um, I think I made a comment yesterday that anti-Teal Revs Twitter is going to be uh, something else after this game. It was a, a bit of a mixed performance uh, from from my view. Teal was only dispossessed once in the game. He had seven ball recoveries, 74% passing accuracy, which is pretty good for a striker. He was 10 for 13 in the attacking third and three for three in the box. Um, so there were some positives com- to come from Teal Bunbury's game. I want to get uh, your take from it. Uh, Carl, uh, it's been three games since Teal Bunbury has scored. Uh, his hot streak seems to be over. Um, if there's someone that might be dropped from the starting lineup, do you think it's Teal Bunbury or do you think he's safe for the time being? I just want to point out that uh, that was a pretty impressive monologue by Seth before. Uh, and uh, if we wanted to log off, I think he could just handle the rest of the podcast himself and uh, just a little solo, just talk for like a half hour straight. Carl, if you don't mind, I'll take this question first that you can uh, answer anything else, I, anything else I don't cover. Hold on. Uh, you know, I think with Teal Bunbury, you just got to stay realistic there are frustrating moments and i obviously understand to see him i don't know how wide he was on that on that uh breakaway counterattack was at least five feet wide of goal i think he didn't even get it close to the target and uh so that in the moment you uh you say uh, wow that's the that's the center forward huh but uh you just gotta think that there's a there's the whole package with teal bunbury 
and you're getting other things that offset. Uh, Obviously, it's not ideal to have your your, uh, center forwards not be able to hit the target. Um, But he does a lot of other good things. He takes a lot of pressure off of uh, the other guys around him just by his work rate and energy and uh, puts them in slightly better positions. takes a little bit of the uh, onus off of them to uh, put in quite the, maybe they can save their legs a little bit because Teal's willing to uh, do that extra work. And uh, when you have a lineup that has so many guys around him capable of, of scoring, then uh, I think you can afford to have a guy like Teal um, in that position. And uh, as you were saying, Greg, uh, you know, the hot streak's over. He's very hot and cold player. I think uh, maybe um, Bruce Arena taking over was a bit of an inspiration. He's a, he's a, Teal's a very competitive guy and uh, maybe that pushed him that, that uh, impetus of, of wanting to impress the new coach of this is your chance to, to lock down the starting job uh, with, with the new coach. And that might've not that he's, letting off the gas pedal now, but uh, just it's tough to keep that up throughout the, the whole season. And and I think you did see that last season where um, maybe uh, relied a little too much on Teal, and by the end of the season, he was running out of gas just to play that type of role for uh, a, full, a full season. And uh, so I actually think it might be to its benefit uh, not to be this starter week in, week out to have a little bit of rotation in there um, and have a, a few games where I'm not advocating that he's never in the starting lineup, that that uh, uh, J.F. Caicedo takes over the role completely. But I think a little bit of rotation where Teal maybe doesn't play, maybe he comes off the bench for 20 minutes or something, uh, can refresh him a little bit and then... Uh, push that uh, competitive streak a little bit that when he gets out there, he wants to score again so that he can get back into the starting lineup. So I almost think it might be good to, uh, to rotate him out. Um, uh, not, not necessarily just because he wasn't able to convert that maybe one of the best, maybe the best chance the Revs had against LAFC, but to uh, that it could just be the best thing for the team overall. Seth, you, you have any uh, thoughts to tack onto that? It's just hard because Teal Bunbury works so hard, and, and I think that's an important part of you know the, the pressing style that's gone away a little bit, but there's still an element of you know we want to win the, the ball higher up the field or at least start our defensive efforts from our strikers. And you saw that at times that you know LAFC get the ball in their back line and Teal Bunbury just comes comes running or he makes a curved run to try to keep the ball on one side of the field. But like I mean we saw a hot streak, and we know that Teal Bunbury is good for a hot streak all at some point. That's just what he's done throughout his career. But there was going to be a time that he cooled, and now he's cooled. Um, you know, he had to really – he had to at least gotten that shot on goal. And if he's not going to get the shot on goal, then he needs to find a way to get move the ball to to Bo and, and to have Bo get a shot on goal. Um, I don't know if this game would have been any better with uh, Juan um, – Casado up top. I do think there's times that he should be up top because he can hold the ball up a little bit better. And I think that he can create with all those attacking elements around him. So you can imagine a hold-up striker where the ball gets to him and then it gets played to Carlos Heel, who then moves it quickly for Bo, who's running in behind. And I think at times 
Um, Teal Bunbury's touch just isn't quite there enough, uh, where that he's not going to bring it down clearly, then move it very quickly. Where Casado, with who you know we mentioned multiple times, that I totally recognize there are a lot of qualities that are not great about Casado, but he is definitely the type of player that has the instincts to play the number nine, to bring the ball down, to move it quickly, to to play the back heels, to try to you know. Uh, go in for that tap-in type of moment. Um, so I think that we, we will probably see him at times, but I mean, it, I don't know. It's, it's hard to imagine, especially where the strategy was, let's try to get in behind the LAFC back line. Casado's not going to do that. He's not fast enough. So you put a guy like Bunbury, who, who is quick, you put a guy like Bo, who's not necessarily uh, the quickest guy out there, but he's crafty enough to like time his run to try to get in behind. So given the strategy, those are probably the guys that you put on the field. But yeah, pretty lackluster night from the, the strikers. Yeah, and I don't want to hop on the Teal needs to be benched because he's gone three games without a goal um, uh, train just yet. But I, I, I certainly see the uh, frustrations from the people who are never on the Teal Bunbury train. Um, I, I will say, I think maybe, I, I think Teal adds kind of a defensive and, and work rate kind of addition to his game that we don't get from, say, Christian Pena. Uh, so I do think there's some added value where you can move him to the wing if you're trying to protect a, a lead or something like that. Um, I'm, I'm curious to see what they do with him going forward. It seems like Bruce Arena likes him. I don't think he will sit out against Seattle. I think they'll give him at least another game to, to see if he can find the back of the net. But um, it, it wouldn't shock me if eventually, if you know, try in, in an attempt to figure out where Gustavo Bo plays best, maybe they move Gustavo Bo up top, move Heel to the center, and move Heel uh, back to right wing uh, where he's played before um i know he played there earlier this year with mixed results but uh i, I don't know i'm, I'm I, I can't see him moving to uh the bench full time uh but where is uh where's brian wright when you need him a uh finisher uh, best finisher on the team yep. maybe time to recall him from from birmingham that's <laughs> it's true brian wright, wright would have finished that shot uh, that, that bunbury had yesterday so it's worth noting that uh, the game, the the Revs have lost every game since Justin Runnix has won on loan. So that's true. I yeah, I, I got nothing to add to that. Uh, let's move on to listener questions for the time being. Uh, Zach Grimes asks asks us looping forward to next week's game. Should we make any changes or should we keep going with the same formation uh, that has been proven to be solid in the eleven game unbeaten streak? Um, Carl, I'll start with you. I don't think, well, let me add my, my thoughts first. I, I don't think there'll be any changes to the formation. I think they'll play kind of the same shape. Um, but I, there'll be a new center back in there. Cause De La May, it sounds like we'll be out for a little bit. It sounds like it'll, I, my guess would be Annie Baba and not Mancy in the starting lineup. Uh, and then I think we'll see Zahibo over Agadello. Um, Carl, I'll lead with you if you want to tell me that uh, Scott Caldwell is going to start, but, uh, go ahead. Yeah. Um, I agree. I think the same shape and formation, roughly, with maybe some new personnel. Um, I think Annie Baba, to me, makes more sense. But Arena was mentioning Mancien in the post-game press conference. I'm not a. I I hesitate to throw him to the wolves against a, a strong team like that when he's been out for so long. But uh, so I I personally I would say Anibaba next week because it does look like Delame is going to be out. Um, and then maybe you get a little bit of rotation elsewhere um, in the lineup. Uh, maybe throw in Diego or, or J.F. Caicedo or 
uh, someone, it looks like also that Luis Caicedo might be out, so then you have to fill that spot as well. But generally, uh, yeah, I, I don't think they changed the formation. I think they maybe changed some of the players. Yep, no, I, I agree with everything you said there. Um, I think they, and, and you mentioned Luis Caicedo's potential injury too. That's that's worth noting that there might be some uh, shifts there. But uh, moving on to uh, C Money uh, 008 from Discord, he asks us, uh, how do the Revs bounce back against a very good Seattle team on the road after a lackluster performance tonight? Uh, Seth, uh, any thoughts on what the Revs can do to bounce back in Seattle? C-Money yeah. was, uh, was me, so I, I was... Are you actually C-Money? Yeah, that's, C-Money's me. No, I, I'm not on Discord. I'm not on Discord at all, so... You had me fooled. I'm, I'm going to say it's Larry Jackson. <laughs> um, so after the, after the game, Bruce Arena was asked about this, and he was pretty quick and kind of said the boys will be fine but like, they're gonna be fine they're gonna recover from this this loss pretty quickly we'll go back to the training ground and we'll prep for for next week's game um it's gonna be a tall ass there's no question i mean if if, if the defense is gonna play the way they did against lafc and the offense is gonna play the way they did against lafc i mean we could be looking for a second uh looking at a second consecutive loss um to, to me, it's just stuff that we talked about earlier. Like, how are you going to play in the wide areas? How are you going to try to combine in the attacking third? Um, I, I, again, I would I would try to get Carlos Heel back in the middle, um, and I'd probably I'd probably actually go with Carlos Heel in the middle, uh, Teal Bumberry on the right hand side, Gustavo Bow on the left hand side, and Casado up top, uh, and that's what we saw in the first game when they were all together. Um, so I would probably, I'd probably go with that type of lineup and then bring Christian Pena on late to see if he can run at guys and try to create things that way. Um, and it gives you the, it gives you some, some speed in the flank. It gives you a couple of guys that you know can play some pretty good defense, and that will help provide cover for Castillo and Brandon By when they go forward. So it's, it's a tough ass. There's no question about it, but. All you can do at this point is get back on the training ground. I mean, the, the positive thing here is after a loving game on beaten run, spirits are still relatively high. You know, like it's not a situation where you lose one, you win one, you lose three, you win two, and and it's just that you know, up and down, up and down. I mean, at this point, spirits are pretty high. They they probably weren't expecting to be in this position given the beginning of the year. Uh, so, you know, the guys continue to keep this momentum going, continue to keep things light, continue to have good training sessions. Um, I think it's interesting to, to note that after the game, Bruce Arena does mention that everything he's doing this year is prepping for next year. So there's a there's an understanding that this year is a bonus. I mean, when you're 2-8-2 two, and two to start the year, to even get in the playoffs – is a big accomplishment. So as long as the team continues to build and continues to recognize themselves and continue to bring, build these partnerships and, and identify areas of weaknesses, then this year is going to be fine. And we're all kind of looking more towards 2020 as, as a year that like Bruce Arena gets to put his, his stamp firmly on this team. So, uh, although I'm not C money that I, that question was actually what I asked roughly what I asked Arena at the press conference and what Seth was referencing, that... Uh, <laughs> that makes a lot more sense to me, by the way. I get what you were saying now. There's, there's, a, uh, there's a thing that um, it's not really related to this, uh, to this topic of whether they'll bounce back, but there's been a phenomenon uh, that has come with the Bruce Arena era 
where you ask what is generally uh, an open-ended kind of question that uh, you're expecting as a reporter, you know, a couple sentences response you can use for a quote. And Bruce Arena just says, uh, they'll be fine. And, uh, and from our perspective writing stories, uh, mine will probably come out on Monday night or Tuesday. Uh, <laughs> it, it's frustrating because you're looking for a quote from Bruce Arena. But you can also see that from the players' perspective, and I don't, I don't know if any of them even watch the press conference, but you just see his confidence and his mannerisms that um, he's not making a big deal out of this LAFC loss. He's not going to um, play mental games with them. He's, he's feeling uh, pretty, uh, still pretty confident and pretty calm about where they are. And, and he mentioned that they have good leadership and he's not, uh, doesn't really have any concern about um, this loss really throwing them off uh, of their, their overall form. Uh, so there it's, it's interesting as a reporter that it can be difficult to get uh, the other question I asked uh, in the press conference, Bruce Arena's response was, I think you just answered your own question and then moved on. So it can be frustrating from that uh, perspective, but uh, you can also see where this uh, is a style that is uh, leading to a good team culture and a confident a confidence in themselves and a comfort uh, with the overall group and the coaching staff and everything that they clearly didn't have under Brad Friedel uh, just a few months ago. Yeah, it, it seems to be the opposite of uh, Revs fans after that LAFC game where he's very calm and collected, not not completely concerned, where I think a lot of people had a the sky is falling mentality. This is going to lead to uh, a, a worse run. Uh, but uh, Bruce Arena seems to be uh, pretty poised uh, and seems pretty confident in this, this team going forward. Let's move on, Carl. Uh, I'm coming to you with this next question. Randy LH asks us on Twitter. Uh, it seems the narrative have, has been that uh, we all we need is a solid defensive signing and we'll be contenders. Given our offensive struggles to finish in this game, does that narrative change? Uh, what are your thoughts on uh, you know transfer window is closing very soon? Um, do you think the Revs, first off, do you think they still need a defensive signing? Uh, or do you think that maybe they might be looking for uh, someone on the offensive side of the ball following last night's game? Yeah, um... Uh, well, what Seth mentioned also uh, that Bruce Arena said uh, keeps um, reiterating that he's taking a longer-term approach, and uh, which I think is good um, in the sense that you've seen in years past with um, Mancien, um with uh, Christian Nemeth, with the other signings that uh, you know it it doesn't. It's better to wait until the off season uh, maybe and when you can really pick your player and get a target the guy who's the right fit for what you think your needs are as a team rather than overpaying for uh, a guy who might not be a perfect fit but kind of you could see how they could improve your team um, so I think that uh, it seems that there's nobody really on the cusp that Bruce Arena uh, and the staff have uh, have singled out that they want to add before the end of this window, and uh, so I I think it makes sense to wait rather than to just kind of uh, take whatever opportunity pops up. Um, just in terms of a long term roster building, 
approach that there really uh, there is a ceiling to this team, probably that uh, you know you can catch lightning in a bottle, but I don't think necessarily adding one good defensive piece is going to um, get them over the hump against NYCFC or Atlanta United or stuff like that. I think it's probably you're looking at a, a one to two year build. Uh, to get to the point where maybe you're a, re- a real legitimate contender. Um, I do still think defense is, uh, or even defensive midfielder or someone to pair with with Luis Caicedo is probably the top priority. Offense, um, you got to figure out where everything fits in, but I think they have plenty of talent up there, and, and uh, they've shown previously that, you know, they can, this team, this group can score. It might just be a matter of getting the right, the pieces in the right place and developing the chemistry, but uh, they have plenty of upside on the offensive end. Um, defensively, I think that's probably, you can, and you can pick your, your poison, and, and part of it probably defend, depends on whether you think Andrew Farrell can be a starter at center back or you want to move him back. Uh, out to right back. Um, I think I would probably target a, a, a nice, sturdy, um, dependable center back. Uh, unfortunately, it seemed uh, Antonio Del Mea was maybe uh, on the comeback trail and, and was regaining the form that he uh, hasn't had for a couple years, and that was going to be a feel-good story, and now he gets injured again, and so we'll see how long that recovery takes. And Nancy Ann, I think... Similarly, you uh, struggle to uh, put too much. Um, uh, you, uh, you just can't rely on Delamere or Mancien to be healthy for a full season. Be good to have them as, or at least one of them as a uh, potentially high upside, um, you know, backup with, uh, you know, or have both of them and hope one of them stays healthy to pair with another strong center back. Because I also don't think I think. Annie Baba is a, a good backup, but ideally not your not your starter, especially if you don't have a very defensive-minded, uh, dynamic uh, fullbacks, which, uh, you know, Castillo obviously is much more of an offensive player. Um, Farrell, for his strengths and weaknesses overall, I think is at least a league average right back. So I, I think you're probably set there if, if uh, he ends up shifting back there. So... Definitely the, the defensive side is, is where they need to add, but I don't think it's going to be in this window. Carl, Carl let me do a quick follow-up with you there, too. Um, I mean, Ma- Michael Mancien, we talked about he, he made his way back into the 18. Uh, we might see him over Annie Baba next week. Um, do you expect anything from Michael Mancien coming back from injury, or, or do you like? is there any expectations that he might regain his spot as a starter on this team, or, or do you have zero expectations? He's just going to kind of be around and leave after the season uh i do i do think if they take the patient approach with him that there might be a chance that he i i think you've got to shoot for having him back to uh 100 by playoff time and not push him to get back too early because uh over his time with the revs he has been a little injury prone and uh so you've got to kind of take a, a careful approach with that um so I, I caution, I think it's great that he's back in the 18, but I don't think that necessarily means he should be back in the, in, in the XI 
next weekend against Seattle. Um, so I, I do think there is some upside there, especially if you consider that when we were uh, most of us who watched the Rebs games earlier in the season were saying, Michael Mancien doesn't look too hot out there. I mean, there's some plenty of plays where uh, it, it looked like he didn't step up to, uh, you know, to stop an offensive chance. And part of that might have just been that he was really injured playing through it, playing through a, a real injury. And uh, so I think there is potential that he's still a good MLS center back. If he's, if he's at at least, you know, 90. Strength, yeah. 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 It, it, it kind of puts his uh, performance at the beginning of the season in a different light. Um, Cause I know he left the Dallas game uh, before it started with an injury and he played in Philadelphia on painkillers. Um, you know, I, I, I agree with your assessment that, um, you know, if this team is going to go into the playoffs, you're going to need all hands on deck defensively. And so you're going to want a Michael Mancian at 100%. Um, so I, I think it's great that they're kind of uh, bringing him back in slowly. Um, but I, I, I don't know, with the emergence of De La Maya, I, I, I think uh, uh, Arita trusts Farrell at center back, so I don't think he's moving Farrell. Um, I wonder if they, I don't know, are, are just kind of keeping Mancien kind of in the background and he, he might make a spot start here or there, uh, or if he comes back and kind of is the, um, you know, anchor center back that he was supposed to be. Uh, I, I could see a wide range of, uh, uh, you know, results uh, from Michael Mancien uh, in the closing months of the, the season. But um, yeah, I, it'll be a uh, interesting to see if he starts over Annie Baba next week, because I could absolutely see it. But I also think that, as you said, they're being extremely cautious with them coming back. So, um, very good chance that Michael Mancien does not play for the Revs again. Uh, so, uh, we'll be interesting to see. Uh, Seth, uh, hopping back over to you. Um, Mike Kennedy asks us, uh, my eye test said Heal and Bo had stinkers. Uh, was it a bad game from our DPs, or were they effectively marked out by LA's three midfielders who clogged up the passing lanes? Yeah, I think it was just a tough game um, where I think the Revs, especially as the game went on, were, were more defensive and they were playing back quite a bit. Um, it was difficult for them to to do their passing game that we've seen in recent weeks. I mean, in recent weeks, we saw that, like, you know, Heel gets on the ball, he combines with someone else, he, you know, gets someone in behind and they score a goal that way. Um, I think that, you know, you're, you're talking about a team that has an opponent that has a lot of big stars that is well coached. I mean, Bob Bradley is a very, very good coach. You know, Bruce Arena is a very good coach, but Bob Bradley is a very, very good coach uh, where he's going to know how to, to set up his team properly to make sure that those types of players aren't getting on the ball as often. Uh, I do think that one thing that LAFC did really well is that they, they swarmed players where uh, you have to move the ball very quickly because they had two, three players quickly closing down um, someone and making sure that they didn't have the opportunity to take too many touches. Um, so, I mean, it, it's something to, to continue to watch going forward. Uh, you know, I brought this up online just before. I went back, and everyone's talking about this idea that Carlos Hill, we talked about in the last podcast, Carlos Hill should be, I should have been on the all-star uh, team. And I don't disagree with it. I mean, he's, he's a very good player. Um, you know, the all-star game and how they make their roster is just kind of an interesting thing anyway. But if you go back, when the all-star team was announced in late June, uh, Carlos Hill only had four goals and four assists. 
he's only come on and been very, very hot recently. And I do think, like we talked about in the last uh, podcast, um, part of that has to do with the way the team was set up under Bruce Arena. And now there's much more passing that's going on. There's much more creativity that's happening. Um, so, you know, I, I think that there's – we need to continue to watch how these players combine with each other, especially against better opponents where – uh, again, I, I do really believe Carlos Hill is an elite player in this league. There's no question about it. But when you look back, he's scoring a lot of goals and making a lot of these things think, uh, things happen with teams that aren't in the playoffs, teams that are going through rough patches. Um, so it'll be interesting to see against uh, teams that are are um, set up organizationally very well, that have these you know real stars. How do the attacking players and the revs find their spaces? Because, I mean, if you look back at the Orlando game, I have zero understanding of how they're playing defensively. You know, like, it, it made no sense what they were doing. They were leaving gaps in behind. They were not closing down players. I mean, if you look at uh, Dio Fagundes' goal, is an Orlando player ever going to step up there? Or if you look at Carlos, uh, no, sorry, uh, if you look at Gustavo's bow goal against uh, Orlando City, Literally, all he does is he passes, he has a back heel to Castillo. Three Orlando players stare at Castillo, and Gustavo Bo like, runs around their back and then scores the goal. Like It's just like confusing stuff that some opponents are doing that if that happens in LAFC, Bruce Arena and um, Bob Bradley, you would imagine, just goes absolutely nuts. He's like, what are you guys doing? Three players staring at Edgar Castillo? Like, What is Edgar Castillo going to do to you versus the, the DP that just came in? You know, Or, or you're not going to uh, shut down um Diego Fugundes when he's marching towards goal so a team like LAFC is going to be better organized they're going to know when to press when not to press they're going to be aware of the attacking players on the field so yeah de definitely something to take a, a look at and, and think about in the, the the games to come yeah we'll, we'll learn a lot about uh this team uh against the uh, tougher schedule coming up in August um, moving back over to Carl, uh, Muhammad Hussein asks us, uh, do you think we should move Gustavo Bo to striker and heel to central attacking mid, which is kind of what I suggested earlier, uh, uh, and bring on, uh, he also suggests bringing on Christian Pania and Diego Fagundes as super subs. Uh, we also did get another comment from Flo on Discord, uh, not Flo from Progressive. Uh, is Pania just a super sub? Uh, so, Carl, this is a bit of a two-part question. What do you think about Boda striker, heel to central attacking midfield, and then Christian Pania potentially as a super sub? Ideally, I I think that uh, Pania is probably best utilized as a starter when in uh, you know LAFC wasn't his best game, but he has that ability to be uh, really dynamic and more than just uh, what you're looking for off the bench. I think he. Has shown over the past, you know, year and a year and a half uh, that he uh, he is a a player that should be an MLS starter. Um, so I I don't think that I don't necessarily love the idea of looking at him as like your your super sub that you're looking to change the game off the bench. They have other uh, players who can kind of fit that role. Um, as for the, uh, you know, where to put Bo and Heel, I I do really prefer Heel in a central role. Uh, I think Bo um, is still up for debate where his best position is, and it's hard to, uh, and, you know, um, none of us really <laughs> watched much apart from maybe a highlight reel on, on YouTube or something before he uh, 
before he came to the Revs. So it's still uh, very early days in terms of getting a, a handle on where exactly Bo fits best into this lineup with this group of players. Um, I would, uh, I, and I know uh, this might not be the most popular idea and that plenty of people will disagree with me, but uh, I personally can see the um, wisdom in maybe putting heel at, in that number eight role a little bit further back, given um, that we've seen how high his work rate is, how he's actually, um, how Seth was mentioning that players like uh, Diego and Agudelo, um just, they don't have, they have been in such attacking roles for so long that they haven't really developed or um, maybe their defensive skills that far back in the field uh, aren't uh, quite what you're looking for in that position. But he, I think, uh, can handle that. And um, I know some people would say that that's wasting his creative talents and his scoring um talents but i think maybe that's kind of uh the role that i always thought um you know maybe uh, kellen Rowe on his best day that would have been where he'd fit into the lineup but obviously he'll a much better a much higher work rate and uh, a more skillful player um but i i think he can impact the game a little further back in the field is if you're not going to use um, Caldwell as that connector and distributor, uh, that maybe Heal is that guy who can, um, you know, orchestrate things uh, and really set up the offensive players in their in the best positions while also um, providing some cover in the in the middle of the field. So, personally, I maybe would like to see similar um, lineup that the revs went with against LAFC, but you could swap heel, uh, back in the, where Agadella was and, and either, um, you know, uh, I don't know. I just, I, I think, uh, I think heel could work there. Bo, I, I don't really have a strong opinion on where, um, where you put him, uh, yet. Yeah. They're, they're both players that, um, you know, there's, there's multiple right answers, uh, and not many wrong answers on where to play him. Uh, and I don't think the idea of playing Carly Seal back at the eight position is necessarily a bad one. I mean, he's a very strong defender. He holds possessions very well. Um, I, I, I'm not sure. I mean, if if they continue to play Bo in the center, I, I wouldn't be opposed to maybe pairing him and Heal both in the center and, and kind of having some overlap. I don't know. I, I'm not a huge fan of uh, Carly's Heal out wide, as we mentioned earlier. So, um, yeah, yeah, all, all very good points. Um, I, I'll, we'll, I want to add another question here that I think we've already answered, so we won't uh, get into it, but uh, Heal is Dad from uh, Discord asked us, what would you have changed tactically to break down L.A.? And Seth, I think he gave a very uh, good answer on that earlier, so I, we won't rehash that one out. Um, Chris uh, Velikas uh, asks us, is, Fabian jo- is a Fabian Johnson acquisition too much to ask for, or can we get Kellen Rowe back from the USL uh, to play left back? Serious questions. Um, I'm actually I, I want to tackle this one because we we mentioned Fabian Johnson a few weeks ago. There was a 
um, Twitter rumor that uh, the Revs were interested in Fabian Johnson, um, and and Sean was on uh, that week, and we kind of talked about how Fabian Johnson might be a better winger than a left back, um, and and we talked about how it's probably not a great fit because of Fabian Johnson's history with Bruce Arena, and they had a bit of a falling out um, with the U.S. Uh, men's national team. Uh, and also, I, I want to point out that we've mentioned a few times that they're playing for next year. Um, you know, everything they're do- looking at is long term. I think Fabian Johnson would be a short term fix, uh, not necessarily a long one given his age. Um, and given his potential salary, I mean, if he's coming in on a DP contract, which he may or may not, um, you know, I don't think the Revs want to lock in a third designated player in this window. Uh, it, sound, it seems like they are going to keep that designated player spot open for an off-season acquisition uh, uh, when the time comes. So um, I, I think Fabian Johnson is not a great match for the Revs, all things considered. Uh, and Kellen Rowe, I, I cannot imagine him ever coming back to New England, um, not just because he's not a great fit for left back, but... Um, because of the comments he also made about New England and about how it was a graduation. So I don't think we'll ever see Kellen Rowe coming back to New England uh, for, for a number of uh, reasons. Uh, but oh, with that being said, I would be more than happy if the Revs went out and got a um, left back, uh, a defensive left back to kind of come in for Edgar Castillo if you're trying to hold a one nothing lead. Um, I, I think an outside back with a little bit more defensive skill is uh, on the list. And, and I think there are a few around MLS that uh, the Revs could could go after that won't cost them a, a huge amount of assets. So um, yeah, that, that's kind of my thoughts on that. Um, Seth, uh, we got a question here from Josh Nye of the Bent Musket. He asks us, uh, do you think that Matt Turner lost his spot after last night's performance? Uh, so Seth, the question is, uh, Josh Nye, uh, is he now a former Bent Musket reporter writer for asking this? This is quite insulting uh, and disrespectful. Uh, Seth, uh, what are your thoughts on uh, Josh's terrible question uh, and Matt Turner's performance? Yeah, uh, we're much like this podcast is a pro Matt Turner podcast. The Ben Musket is a pro Matt Turner news source. Uh, I think you and I were the first ones that were tweeting about Matt Turner uh, hype train. I think you were the one saying that to get on the train, and I was the one saying that he should be on the national team when he first emerged. Uh, yeah, I, I mean, I'm a, I'm a fan of Matt Turner. I mean, he had some great saves. The scoreline could have been much worse. So I think there's there's two that like stand out as the like you know huge athletic. Most other people don't make those types of saves type moments. Um, and and I think I've mentioned this before with goalkeepers, it's about consistent reps. And you know, goalkeeping is a position where you can't bring this guy on in the you know, 60th minute to get a little run out. Like you're either the starter or you're not the starter. And Cody Cropper had a full season as a starter. He wasn't the player. You guys have mentioned some really great stats about his expected, uh, how many goals he lets in and, and how that compared to the rest of the league. So I won't go through and look at those again, but he just, he just wasn't the starter. He wasn't good enough. And granted, yeah, the, the, the team wasn't great that year. Uh, but you can look at, back at the last two years and say, the defense hasn't been that great either. And in that situation, um, uh, Matt Turner has stepped up and he has, you know, he has made some huge stops that either gain the Revs some points or prevent the scoreline from being more uh, embarrassing. And I think Brad Knight is who he is. He's a solid backup. He's a good veteran presence. He's a guy who steps in for a couple games and does the job. Uh, so I, I can't imagine putting anyone else on the, in that position and um, put anyone else in that position and getting better results, you know? So, you keep Matt Turner in there. I don't think he had that bad of a game overall last night by any means. But even if he did have a bad game, I'd say, nope, it's his for the rest of the season. You ride it out. And then uh, at the end of the season, if Bruce Arena decides that 
uh, he doesn't like Matt Turner, then then you can go out and get another goalkeeper. But give him the entire season to to continue to grow and and to have that spot be his own. Did uh, Seth just steal my Matt Turner? Um, my Matt Turner take. I feel like uh, feel like I got uh, take stolen there. Um, so I believe I was the one last year who asked whether Matt Turner should be considered for the national team, or was that just was that just Brad Friedel mentioning that out of the blue? Um, <laughs> I, Could have been I, all of us. I mean, look, I think it's fair to say that we all love Matt Turner. This is a pro Matt Turner podcast. That's specifically why I brought you guys on. It's because you know I vet your opinions on Matt Turner. I I know you guys saw my SBI soccer piece uh, last week that uh, that looked at Matt Turner's save percentage uh, during the unbeaten streak, which uh, was like eighty one percent or something like that, and uh, which would be by far the MLS record if he could do it over a whole season. Obviously, you can't just take a player's best stretch of the season and say they would have they would be the best. They would have the best season in MLS history. That's only a, a small sample size, but uh, Matt Turner's been great in the past uh, couple months, and um, I don't think he was even bad against LAFC. I think he was he was fine. Um, so, uh, Seth, uh, maybe have a have a little talk with that uh, that Bent Musket contributor. I'm really happy to know that it does not reflect the opinions and the values of the Bent Musket organization. And and for all I know, I think Josh might be trolling just to get a response, which he did. Good for Josh. But um, I, I do want to just point out uh, that Matt Turner is now fourth in MLS in uh, goals against to expected goals against differential. differential. Um, I've had difficulty explaining this before, but um, basically he's the... By this metric, he's the fourth best keeper behind Steve Clark of Portland, Daniel Vega of San Jose, and Bill Hamid of DC United. And he has significantly less minutes uh, than the rest of rest of them, except for Steve Clark. Um, Steve Clark has 988 to Turner's 832. So, um, yeah, Matt Turner, if you want to go off of statistics, and this is according to American Soccer Analysis, has been one of the best keepers in MLS uh, this season. So, uh, and and getting back to last night too, uh, he had a couple of really nice plays. Uh, LA. LAFC had 20 chances yesterday, uh, and the Revs conceded twice. Uh, and I, I don't necessarily think the defense was that great, but uh, there were a couple play where uh, Carlos Vela, obviously the the feral own goal, uh, uh, near own goal, uh, Turner came out nicely and, and charged that one and, and made the stop. There were a couple play where Vela uh, kind of had a had Turner one on one, and Turner was able to cut off the angle uh, and really frustrate uh, Vela. I think one time he tried cross chipping it across the box, and it was cleared up by either Farrell or by. And then he also had a shot where that went wide that that Turner did a nice job of uh, forcing the shot wide. So um, Turner had some, and then of course there were a few three or four good saves from from Matt Turner. So I, I thought Matt Turner played pretty well. And I think if you have a Cody Cropper or a Brad Knighton, I mean I, I think that score line is a little bit higher than two nothing. So. We do not appreciate the question, Josh. How dare you? Uh, Seth, uh, any other final thoughts there? Carl, uh, there's this thing called Twitter, so I went back and looked at uh, it. Uh, I don't know if you remember this this question from 5-30-2018, um, but it, the tweet you wrote says, by the way, Fido brought up uh, that Matt Turner could be on the U.S. national team on 
was owned. The question by at Sethman31, which I believe is my Twitter account. Very professional name right there. The question by Sethman31 was simply, what is his potential? So it seems like I was the one to first mention uh, Matt Turner's potential and how high it could be, which led to the infamous question, uh, sorry, the answer by Friedel saying that he could someday be on the U.S. men's national team. So I'm just saying... Uh, quick fact checked about what you just said right there. Actually, uh, Seth Man is my Twitter handle, and I was referring to myself in that my alternate Twitter handle in that uh, in that tweet right there. Fair enough, C money. Fair enough, C money. <laughs> Moving on. Uh, Bo is the goat from Discord. Asks us. Well, this is another troll question, I think. But how many games do we lose in a row before we get eliminated from playoff contention? Uh, I say zero. I think we're winning next week at Seattle, so we'll, we'll just move on to the second question. But, uh, Carl, the more serious question here, is it realistic to say that we can still make the playoffs easily looking at our impossible Seattle, Portland, Red Bulls, NYCFC, uh, and Atlanta schedule? Um, those are five games, I think, of the remaining ten, and six of the six of the remaining ten games are on the road. Um, so, Carl, uh, how do you feel about the Revs' playoff chances? I think that they're definitely in the mix, but uh, they are going to be fighting. They're going to be in a dogfight uh, with uh, with Toronto, um, possibly with Montreal as well. And uh, and the schedule is definitely not friendly. You mentioned uh, that they're on the road a lot. Um, they've really got to maximize their home games. Uh, Chicago, I think they have a they they can't settle for for one point in that uh, upcoming home game later this month. Uh, the TFC game also next month at home. Uh, that's going to be that might be you know uh, an even more important game than the LAFC game was was really a culmination of um, the un- unbeaten streak and and led to uh, you know a lot of excitement about that. But the TFC game at the end of August uh, might be the most important uh, game left on the schedule because uh, they really need as many points as they can get. Um, I, I think they are definitely stuck in that between the six to eight um, range and in, in the East, uh, possibly if they go on a run, maybe they can still um, get up to the, the fifth seed or, or something like that. But you look at the schedule and it is very tough. Uh, not just these upcoming ones against uh, on the road against the Sounders and the Red Bulls, uh, you know NYCFC twice. They've still got Atlanta left on the schedule. Um, uh, Portland, um, maybe uh, you know the last two games are against NYCFC and Atlanta. And I guess there's a potential that they've already locked up their their seedings and they want to keep guys healthy for the playoffs. And maybe that uh, scenario could play to the Revs' benefit if they're in a tight. Uh, race with uh, with Toronto or Montreal. I think probably Orlando's dropped out of that playoff mix. Um, but it's it's going to be tough. It's going to be, uh, and you can kind of see why um, Bruce Arena has tempered uh, expectations and not gotten to, hasn't really taken the bait uh, anytime someone asks him about how great the team's playing and, you know, coming back and maybe making the playoffs this year. He hasn't really gotten too carried away. And uh, that might be because he looked at the schedule and, and said to himself, it's going to be tough. So they're in the mix, but uh, it's, not a, it's not a sure thing, definitely. 
Yeah, I think five thirty eight had their playoff odds around fifty eight percent last week. I, I don't, I haven't looked it up to see if it's been updated today. Um, I imagine it'll be a fifty fifty shot. Uh, just some other listener comments that we want to wrap up with. Uh, Patrick Delaney says, uh, we can't be too disappointed we lost, but I think we should have scored once. 11 games is a really good streak, and we should still be proud of the boys. Uh, agreed there. Uh, Mike D on Twitter also says, I think the early go- goal set the tone for the game. LA was able to take their foot off the gas, play defense, and wait for our mistakes. The better team won, but this game could be a good building block for Arena to use for the rest of the season. Um, and that actually is a good point uh, that we haven't talked about today. Um, I think Matt Doyle had the stat that uh, prior to this LAFC game, since Brad Friedel was fired, the Revs were trailing for a grand total of 28 minutes uh, in only one game. Uh, so uh, this was a bit of a different game uh, from what we've seen uh, throughout the unbeaten streak where uh, the Revs were playing from behind and on their back foot the entire game. And LAFC, who's the superior team, uh yeah, as he says, was able to just kind of lock down defensively and try to counterattack and wait for for mistakes in the midfield. So and, uh, that was that was Matt Doyle who had that stat. It was uh, it was not Seth. What did I say? Did I say Zach Doyle? No, no, Matt, Matt, Matt Doyle uh, beat me by twenty five seconds. Oh yes, we, yeah, we both we both drew the same thing. No, about twenty five no, no. seconds. Yeah, that's why I did not credit Seth. We can't give Seth credit for everything. He tries to take it take credit for the Matt Turner stuff. Tries, yeah, no. Um, and then also Powder Hungry on Twitter says, uh, Zahibo is passing like he changed the FIFA passing assist to, to manual. Uh, scratch that. The whole team uh, passed like trash. Um, we didn't complain about Wilfred Zahibo, but uh, if, if you go back to that second goal, by the way, Seth, I know we've complained about Zahibo not tracking back on uh, certain plays. Um, that play is not very different. Looks like De La Mea steps up. Zahibo starts to chase back and then realizes he's not going to get there and just kind of gives up on the play. So a um, little, little bit uh, more of the same from Big Z. Um, some other just quick news uh, worth noting. We've already talked about Luis Caicedo and De La Mea leaving with injuries. Um, it sounds like De La Mea is out for next week. Luis Caicedo is still uh, not known. Um, Justin Rennicks and Isaac Anking were loaned out to, uh, I believe it was North Carolina and Charlotte, respectively. Uh, so those two guys are getting some minutes, which I think everyone uh, on here today uh, certainly agrees with. If the young guys are not getting minutes, it's good to send them down to get minutes elsewhere. So hopefully those guys get to develop a little bit uh, in USL. Uh, and then before we go to our final thoughts, uh, we do have to kind of briefly mention that uh, yesterday was the return of Lee Wynn to Foxborough. Uh, he entered in the uh, somewhere around the 80th minute. I don't have the exact number in front of me. But at the time, the Revs were down 2 nothing, so I think the crowd was less than enthusiastic. And the only ones that seemed to really <laughs> care at that point that Lee Wynn was coming in uh, were the fans that were booing him. Bit of an interesting reception yesterday for Lee Wynn. Carl, I saw you uh, kind of in the weeds on Twitter uh, about Lee Wynn, so you seem to be the mo- one most passionate about this. Uh, what are your thoughts about uh, fans booing Lee Wynn and his return to New England? Uh, you're correct. This is something that I do have a bit of a uh, passion for. Um, I thought it was wrong. I thought it was a bad look by the fan base. I realize it doesn't reflect everyone, and it might have been there are a lot of more casual fans uh, that were there, and it seemed that Lee uh, did get a positive reception from the uh, supporters section, from the you know the Midnight Riders, the Rebellion, and some others that were down toward the field. You saw some videos on social. You saw him going over to that that side of of the field afterward, and and he said that that was a positive reception uh, from them, and that he appreciated it. But you couldn't ignore that um, 
it was a, a pretty uh, pretty decent decibel level of booing um, when he came onto the field, and uh, and I don't think he deserves that. I mean, uh, Lee Wynn has, uh, from I think our experiences interacting with him, can say that he generally is a good guy. He's not a, 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 a head case or a troublemaker that tried to disrupt the, the revs. He gave them... Uh, several good years. Uh, the one time he did have a uh, contender level team around him, uh, he, I mean, Jermaine Jones gets a lot of the credit too, but he had uh, the MV Lee season where they went to the MLS Cup and lost against one of the better teams in MLS history, obviously Bruce Arena's LA Galaxy, which, uh, you know, had, uh, you know, uh, Keane, you know, Donovan, um, uh, Giasi Zardes, Omar Gonzalez. That was a that was a juggernaut team. So it wasn't too surprising that they lost that game. But um, it, it was pretty clear that uh, Lee Wynn wasn't going to have a chance to compete for a title uh, under as the Revs were previously constructed before Bruce Arena came in. Um, I I think that Lee Wynn has been one of the players uh, in. U.S. history that has uh, gotten kind of screwed the most in terms of uh, he's always been underpaid. Uh, he's putting up huge seasons and and has never been a DP or even um, I think at the max salary. Um, never really got a, a fair look at the, the U.S. men's national team. Uh, he, you know he's had a tough road, and over over that time he's been uh, a pretty nice guy about these situations, but it came to a point where they weren't willing to uh, pay him what he deserved, and they also weren't willing to put a team around him that was going to compete for a title. And uh, Lee Wynn is coming toward the tail end of his career, and it made sense that uh, he would want to go someplace else. Uh, I also want to point out that um, the holdout was only really because the Revs weren't willing to... Um, meet him halfway and they probably could have even gotten a better package in return um if they had been willing when lee uh had asked for a trade and reportedly from brian o'connell he even asked for a trade the previous season before that and then he came out and whatever it was 11 goals and 18 assists or some, something like i forget the exact numbers but he had a, a fantastic season after reportedly asking for a trade that offseason uh, gave it 100% that, that year, asked for a trade again, uh, still wouldn't, um, you know, st still wouldn't pay him or let him go. Uh, so you can understand why at a certain point he wanted to take control of his career. Um, it's great for him and he seems happy that he's in LAFC and why wouldn't he be happy because they are uh, seemingly on a course to be one of the better teams in MLS history and maybe even will win the cup this year. Um it's just too bad that he got booed. I mean, he put in uh, several really good seasons for the Revs. Um, he was the guy, uh, when, and there wasn't a ton around him. Uh, and he, in in those moments, didn't really complain about it publicly. Um, and uh, I, I think uh, I, I also have a problem with these uh, with a hypothetical fan who was um, for the past several years 
complaining about the craft's lack of investment in the team, you know, uh, not doing a new stadium, not um, paying much for DPs, not putting a great, um, the best roster they could on the field, or were upset with Mike Burns, or even upset with Jay Heaps and, and Brad Friedel, and, uh, and had those opinions, but at the same time also think that Lee Wynn shouldn't have had those same opinions himself and wanted to get out of town like it seemed like half the roster did. Uh, you saw what Kellen Rose said, and there was a pretty decent number of guys who it seemed wanted to leave this organization in the past couple of years, and, and also you don't see guys flocking to come to the Revs, and maybe that'll change with Bruce Arena. But uh, on the whole, I think Lee Wynn had a pretty, pretty reasonable case, and uh, I, I just I don't think he should have been booed like that. Yeah, I'll jump in and I'll say, honestly, I don't care. If the fans want to boo them, the fans can boo them because the fans can do whatever they want. And then they, they pay the money to be there. They can do their own thing. I think my bigger issue is, and I, and I get that this obviously is associated with the idea of booing, but I think that people kind of forgot all the contributions that Lee Wynn made. And I think that people also forget that in MLS, there's no real movement that can happen. I mean... If you think about it, in 2018, yes, he signed a contract in 2016, but in 2018, he was looking for a move. He had asked multiple times for a move, and the organization wasn't willing to budge. They even said that last night when we were talking to him. He said, you know, Mike Burns was not willing to budge. I was trying to force a move, try to be reasonable in a lot of different ways, but he wasn't willing to budge, so I had to make my stance to try to get a move. We've seen other organizations willing to move on from players. You know, uh, I'm just going to use Justin Miram, which is probably not a great example because he ends up going back to Columbus. But Justin Miram wants to move, and Columbus Crew say, you know what? We will move you. Okay, We move you to Orlando City. He goes there for a little while, doesn't like it. He comes back to Columbus. And it actually, that might actually be a good example where um, people, if you treat some of these players with respect and understanding, they're going to speak highly of your organization. They're going to want to come back. And we haven't really seen that with the Reds. I mean, you think about Michael Parkhurst. He leaves. He has no interest in ever coming back to New England. He says he wants to uh, retire in Atlanta. And that's a guy who's from the New England area, play, that once played for his hometown team, played multiple good years, but says, you know what? I don't want to go back there. I don't want to go back there with the turf. I don't really want to go back there uh, with some of the organization was, that was there. Now, obviously, things might change because Bruce Arena is there. But, you know, him, uh, Jeff Laurentowitz, uh, there have been so many different players that have left this organization on kind of bad terms because the organization was playing hardball. They weren't playing, uh, paying their players enough. They weren't listening to trade requests. Uh, in a lot of ways, they were kind of holding them hostage, and that's difficult to have positive feelings in that situation. You know, if you're Lee Wynn, yes, you signed a contract in 2016. That's a big step up from your initial contract. I went back and looked at the numbers, and uh, he was making around like $44,000 when he first came to the Revs in 2012. That's pretty crazy to think about. The next year, he gets a, a, a salary bump to $73,000, you know? So he has to, like, and those numbers are roughly, I don't have the numbers exactly in front of me right now because I was also uh, looking up some other information. But that's roughly what he was making. And, yes, he's getting incremental salary bumps, but he's getting nothing when compared to uh, players around the league that are putting up similar numbers or even players on his own team that aren't putting up similar numbers. I mean, think about it. Like, you're, you're on this team – 
where uh, they're bringing in a guy like Claude Dielna on a big contract, and he's not proving to be much of a, a defender that's, like, securing that back line. Like, how are you supposed to feel as Lee Wynn, this guy who's constantly putting up good numbers, constantly running the attack, and you're not getting paid as much as this guy who, you know, just comes from Europe and has a pedigree but isn't necessarily doing the job on your team? And there becomes a point where you get frustrated and you say, okay, if you're not going to trade me, if you're not going to give me that big contract, in a lot of ways, that was going to be his last payday, right? I mean, he's pretty old at this point. He deserves one last kind of big payday to show that he can continue to, that, partly because of all the things that he's done, but also because he's still a solid contributor uh, for this team. So if, he's not, if they're not going to be willing to do that, then he has to do something in order to kind of pursue that last trophy or to uh, try to pursue that last payday. So he decides not to show up. And I think, to, again, to me, it's the limitations of the organization. You know, Mike Burns, uh, we've heard, I've heard it from multiple people saying that, uh, you know, we don't want to do business with him. That business was closed when Mike Burns was there. Someone actually texted me, an agent texted me, that it feels good that they're now going to be able to do business with the revolution now that Mike Burns is gone. I mean, there's agents that didn't want to deal with this organization because of how they, they negotiated things. And I do think there is some benefits to that because, uh, you know, like, you're obviously able to get what you want. You're obviously able to keep your salaries low. But there's some negatives there where there are going to be players that don't want to play for this organization. You know, like kudos to Mike Burns in some ways for, for getting all those years out of Lee Wynn for a very low salary. You know, like, I mean, think about Giassi's artist. Giassi's artist, you know, is doing some, some good stuff and all of a sudden gets this big contract this year, right? Like, is he worth that money? I don't know, maybe. But like, the organization felt that they wanted to pay him that way to keep him there, to keep him happy, to keep him to continue scoring goals and, and not become a, a negative in the locker room and stuff like that. So they give him that money. In the case of Lee Wynn, the argument was, well, you signed a contract in 2016. You better honor your contract, which is a, I understand it's a valid thing. I mean, if any, you know, anyone that has a contract needs to honor that contract. But there's also a situation of like, hey, look at everyone around me making more money that's doing less than me. Dude, don't you like value me? Don't you respect who I am? Like, you should give me uh, a little bit more money. You should give me a little bit of promotion, or you should be willing to trade me somewhere else that uh, I, I that has a chance at winning a trophy. Remember, this is when Brad Friedel came in. Sure enough, like we didn't really know how that was going to pan out, but like the team wasn't in a good position. Whether it was the end of the Jay Heaves era or the beginning of the, the Brad Friedel era, things weren't going well. If for Lee Win, you can understand that desire to go somewhere else. You could also, if you want to put it in more real life context, think about the situation where you're constantly in your job, you're working long hours, you go to your boss and ask for a promotion. He says, you're doing fine where you are right now. Like, why would we give you more money right now? It becomes that frustration. So I can understand why Lee Wynn did what he did. And I kind of blame a little bit the MLS structure for allowing that to happen, where Lee Wynn wanted to stay in MLS. Like, yes, there was um, interest elsewhere, but he came here for a reason. He likes living in this country. So he wanted to stay in this league, but there was no ability for him to uh, gain free agency or to move unless Mike Burns was able to budge. And Mike Burns is not going to be able to budge, wanting to budge because he's trying to keep that salary cap low. He's trying to um, keep players there because we know how hard it was for Reds to, to replace players. I mean, think about it. Lee Wynn, if he leaves, yes, Carlos Heel came in, but... Um, it's going to be difficult for the Revs 
to, to replace that player. Think about how many players the Revs, especially before Bruce Arena, uh, how many players the Revs picked up when they were young and they kept them year after year after year after year. That's kind of the structure of MLS. Like you have to sign a lot of these contracts because there is no free agency and it's difficult to, to kind of force a type of move unless the willing they, the, the organization is willing to, um, to do it. Like we saw with Justin Miram and some other players or, um, you gain that free agency, which we've seen is basically impossible until uh, under the current CBA. So I, I, go ahead and boom if you want to boo him. But there's also this understanding of like, he was in a hard situation. You know, if your boss said, I'm not going to pay you more money, I, I'm not going to send you somewhere else, you'd have a similar situation. You have, you'd eventually quit. You eventually threaten to go somewhere else. Uh, and that's what Lee Wynn did. He, he ends up um, forcing a move to LAFC. I personally think that if he was on another team, like right now he's a, a off the bench uh, player, but if he was on another team, he would still be a starter in this league. I mean, when he comes off the bench, he is still so dynamic. He's still so creative. Uh, I think elsewhere in the league, he's still a starter. So, you know, like a couple years at at a, a, a seven hundred fifty thousand dollars, maybe maybe. Somewhere around that number is probably a fair contract for a guy who, when he began his time in MLS, was making around $40,000. Yeah, and and I just kind of want to point out a couple things and emphasize a few things is that I think we kind of view athletes, you know, the, the contract argument, um, you know, I think that argument works a lot better for, say, baseball or, you know, football where they're making millions and millions of dollars. Um, you know, Seth, you mentioned that Lee Wynn made $44,000 in 2012. Um, I, I mean, there is very restricted free agency. Um, there are, uh, you know, the players, the rules for MLS is really anti-player. Um, it, it's very, very difficult for especially American-based players who are uh, coming up through the system in, in domestically uh, to get huge paydays. I know we've talked about how little draft picks are paid. I think Matt Turner is making $63,000 or something like that. When you know, uh, We talk about Diego Fagundes, who is second all-time on the Revolution goal-scoring list. He is still below $200,000. Uh, and so, um, you know, drastic actions are needed to get paid, comp, you know, to be paid fairly. And Lee Wynn did have a, a bit of a contra- contract dispute, I think in 2014 or 2015, uh, when he was being paid, I think like 140,000 during his MVP season. Um, and, and the revs rewarded him with a new contract. Um, I, I think he kind of hit the nail on the head where when Lee Wynn is the seventh paid, highest paid team, uh, highest paid player on the team, and they're sending a dump trunk of money to Claude Dielna's house. Um, I, I understand why Lee Wynn feels it a bit disrespectful. And I think it should be noted also that Lee Wynn requested a trade multiple times in 2017. I think it needs to be known that, uh, you know, Lee Wynn had a, had a bid from uh, an Israeli team for $1 million in 2017 that the Revs passed on. They could have accepted that deal. That team was not going very far. Uh, and they decided to hold him throughout the rest of the season, which... It was fine logic at the time, but if you're if you have an unhappy player who's requesting a trade and you get offered a million dollars for him, um, you know that might be a situation where you want to pass up. You know that, that might be a, an, a, an offer you don't pass up. Uh, and then also the Revs got multiple offers before the 2018 season, uh, as Taylor Twelman reported. I think a few teams, uh, I think Chicago was rumored team, a team, Montreal was a rumored team, and the Revs didn't 
take it because uh, it was an Eastern Conference team. So uh, the Revs really were were extremely picky on what to do with Lee Wynn. Um, and, you know, it, it's you gain that reputation of being a, a team that restricts your players' careers and restricts them from moving forward. And as you said, that, that, that hurts the team in the long run. Um, Brian, You mentioned Brian O'Connell's report on Lee Wynn in 2018. He also reported that, you know, it, it had effects in the locker room and a lot of the veteran players that were friends with Lee Wynn and that had been playing with Lee Wynn for years, uh, you know, it, it kind of divided the locker room and, and how the team felt about Brad Friedel and Mike Burns and how they were handling that situation. So overall, I mean, that I think is more criticisms of the, the Revs front office. If you want to crit- boo Lee Wynn for, um, you know, sitting out, and not honoring his contract, that's fine. But I think you have to also understand that Lee Wynn didn't sit out immediately. You know, he, he didn't wake up one day in 2017 and request a trade and say, I'm not playing until you trade me. He 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 was playing through these trade uh, requests. They gave him a full off season, and nothing happened. Uh, and so, you know, I, I think that's just kind of the structure of MLS, where if you want to move to a different team, whether it's an MLS or abroad, you kind of have to force at least the Revolution's hand. Um, and and I will also bring up one other situation that uh, just to to kind of again crap on the front office for, uh, but. Um, uh, for for those of you that remember Steve Newman, he was cited in a Washington Post article where he requested his release or he requested to be traded when he was not getting minutes, and the Revs denied it. Steve Newman wasn't playing at all, uh, and essentially Steve Newman had to retire uh, and because the Revs had all of his rights. Uh, and so the Revs had a reputation for uh, preventing players from moving on in their careers and, and moving to uh, the highest possible level, which, you know, in soccer teams have to have that bit of an understanding that uh, players are eventually going to want to move on and you have to kind of work with them for that or else it's going to bite you in the long run. And that's that's exactly what happened with Mike Burns. Uh, and, and as you say, Seth, um, that agent who says it's good to be able to do uh, business with New England, um, Mike Burns certainly uh, was not a very uh, personal or, or nice player to his players. So um, again, if you want to bully win, that's fine. But uh, I think he contributed a lot more uh, uh, and his contributions to the Revs uh, greatly um, outweigh uh, kind of the ending in New England. So um, we did uh, do a quick poll uh, on um, if you would have booed Lee Win if you were there or cheered Lee Win. 45% said they would have cheered Lee Win. Uh, 31% that said they had no reaction. And 25% said they booed or they would have booed. So I, I think overall, most of Revs fans are with us. Uh, but as I say, I, I think kind of the situation in the game where it was kind of ending, it, it was pretty apparent that the Revs were going to lose. Uh, I think it was a bit of a sour crowd that led to um, uh, the boos coming in uh, when he came in. Um, let's move on to some final thoughts. Carl, you have any final thoughts before we wrap up today? Yeah. Um, and just a, a small point to draw back to what I was saying about um, that Lee Wynn has had one of the more uh, unfortunate uh, careers for his how uh, how great of a player he's been that uh, he is I don't know where you would rank him on the list but in the past decade or whatever he's been one of the top uh, number 10s uh, among the American uh, players and and, uh, and uh, if he was able to uh, finally get that that uh, MLS Cup uh, this year or next or whenever it, it may be, um, that it would feel kind of uh, kind of justified that after uh, having spent most of his career, you know, just um, playing really well but not having the best opportunities that uh, he, he might uh, deserve, 
um, or, or hope for that uh, that he finally gets that chance toward the end of his career. Uh, but my overall last point is that uh, I was just thinking of, about this this Lee win situation of him coming back really uh, uh, puts in perspective the contrast, just um, the kind of culture uh, and the reputation that the Revs had um, previously under maybe you want to put most of it on on Mike Burns or if you want to say that the Crafts um, only gave uh, Mike Burns and and uh, and the, the team so much uh, not enough resources to really do the job um, or even uh, you know some people have blamed Jay Heaps which I don't I think Jay Heaps was fine obviously Brad Friedel was uh, was a mess um, but uh, it really uh, draws into contrast um, that you know, just recently, Bruce Arena, um, you know, Gustavo Bo said he was uh, kind of sold on the revs by the chance to play for Bruce Arena and, and execute this vision that Bruce Arena had for him and for the team. And to be able, right after, um, the revs have always, of course, they brought in Carlos Heel in the offseason. That was a, a big move for them. Um, but I, I think that Heel was looking for a place where he could kind of show himself after being uh, down in the Segunda uh, division in, in, uh, in, in Spain. Um, but uh, to, to show, you know, right after he comes and takes over the revs that he can attract a big um, uh, kind of star player like that. And that just the change in, in the, how players on the team seem to feel um, that uh, it, it really um, is such a drastic change from the past few years where you really can understand why um, Lee Wynn felt like after years it was just time to move on, why Kellen Rowe seemed to have a, a similar sentiment, um, why we wondered if Diego Fagundes was, um, was headed, uh, headed for the exit, uh, you know, as you mentioned, how underpaid he's been and, and uh, didn't have a great uh, season under Brad Friedel, neither did Christian Pena. You uh, wondered if maybe he kind of felt like it was his time here was he was ready maybe for the next stop. And and Bruce Arena really changed all of that. And like I said, still obviously really early in his tenure, but uh, it's a, it's a really positive sign, and it shows you how important um, team leadership, just in terms of the coach and the people running the operations, um, how big of an impact that that can have. And obviously Bruce Arena is one of the best that's ever done it in MLS or most successful. Um, and, uh, and, and you're seeing why. And uh, Seth, do you have any final thoughts before you, uh, we want to uh, wrap this up? Yeah, I'll just say a couple quick things just because uh, I know we're probably almost two hours long with this podcast, but just to give you the couple numbers, uh, Jesse Zardes last year was making $630,000. This year he got a, a bump to $2 million, uh, uh, 23 million, uh, wait, 23, two th- two, about $2 million as far as uh, his salary bump. So that's, you know, playing for a player that you know want to be happy in Columbus. Uh, and just kind of also a, a fun little thing to look at is look at the salary numbers. When Lee Wynn signed in 2012, he was making $44,000. Uh, players that were making more than him are signing the Aussie at, uh, $84,000, Kellen Rowe at $75,000, uh, Dimitri Mbongo at $70,000, uh, Clyde Sims at $75,000, Tyler Pollock, if you remember that name, 
at uh, 60,000. Stephen McCarthy at 51,000. Bobby Shuttleworth was actually making uh, the same amount. Uh, actually, he was making uh, $100, $101 more than um, Lee Wynn. So just uh, just give you an idea of like Lee Wynn came here. I know he came off the waiver uh, tr uh, transfer as far as coming from Vancouver because Vancouver dumped him. But like he came here making absolutely nothing, you know, like compared to the players on his team, compared to just in general what the salary was. And he slowly got these pay raises, but he never got that big payday like someone like Giuseppe Zara's got. Um, so, I mean, I, I think it's okay to feel for him. Like you said, like soccer players don't have long careers. They don't make much money unless they really demand it. And in this case, he had to demand it to do something. And, and I mean, I think that he's, I think he is thrilled to have been sent to LAFC uh, where he, you know, played a decent amount of games this year. And even as a reserve, um, sorry, he's played a decent amount of games last year. And even this year, uh, he's a little bit of a reserve. I think he's more than happy to kind of have that and be a, a playoff contender, uh, to be a championship contender, to have a chance at the supporter shield. I mean, I just can't imagine if he ends up staying all throughout last year with Brad Friedel running these two a days, you know, the team goes through this horrible stretch. Um, I mean, I remember like after Brad Friedel left, some players basically saying like, I didn't think I could survive because we were like being out. We were overrun. They were exhausting us. And just imagine Lee Wynn having to be living through that, making his mediocre salary saying, I asked for a trade guys. I wanted a trade. Like, Please honor that situation. So I think that he he found himself in a good situation. The Reds got a decent, you know, haul for a guy who's you know towards the end of his career. Um, I mean, it, it's it's questionable for a player to sit out, especially if you're you know a, a Reds fan. I can understand why you're frustrated, but it's what was best for the player, and and I think that he has no regrets concerning it. Yep, and uh, for, for final thoughts on my end, I'm actually going to switch it up and talk about a, uh, another former Rev, Kai Kamara. Uh, I don't know if this has ever happened in MLS history, but uh, Kai scored an own goal and then responded with a hat trick. Uh, so a bit of an eventful night for Kai where he found a goal four times last night, three of them uh, for his own team. So I uh, just wanted to give a quick shout-out to Kai. Um, guys, you want to give your Twitter handles before we wrap it up? Uh, Seth, let's start with you. At SethMan31. Uh, I am also at Sethman31. Any any uh, good articles coming from you guys this week? Anything you want to promote before we uh, end it? Yeah, a uh, couple days. I should have a Lee Wynn uh, story up about uh, why he doesn't owe the Reds anything. So you can follow both Seth and Carl at SethMan31, and you can follow us at Revolution Recap, and also like our Revolution Recap page on Facebook. Please leave us a review on iTunes or wherever you're listening. Uh, the Revs head to the West Coast next week for a brutal fixture against Seattle at CenturyLink Field, uh, where they have not won since 2009. We'll be back next week to break it all down, but until then, thank you everyone for listening, and go Revs!